Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you on this beautiful Lord's Day. I hope you had a wonderful week. Let's now ask the Lord to bless us as we go before him to sit and hear his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now speak to us as we have now entered into Holy Week. We pray that in this time of meaningful reflection that you would prepare us with today's word especially. And Father, I ask that you would encourage all of us where we are at at this present moment. Lord, you know where we have been, what we are going through, and what we will have to face. And you know exactly what you must say to us so that we can be fortified in our faith, hopeful in our hope, and established in your love for us. And so, God, I pray for all of us, especially myself, as I deliver your word, that as I speak, it would be carried by your spirit into the deep, depths of the hearts of your people that it would bring conviction and hope and peace and most importantly enduring faith to trust in the God that we have gathered for on this Lord's day we pray now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it for we ask all these things in Jesus name amen and amen two questions that I'm about to ask of you and I want to see if you can note the difference you ready question number one what is the most important thing in life? Again, what is the most important thing in life? And now, question number two. What is the most important thing in your life? One more time. What is the most important thing in your life? Just in case you didn't catch it, the only difference between these two sentences, questions, is the one word, your. And that one little word changed two virtually sounding identical questions into two very different ones. Because the first question has answers that everyone would agree with no matter who they are. For example, one could make the case that food and water is the most important thing in life. And it doesn't matter who a person is, hardly anyone could disagree with that. But the second question could hardly ever be answered the same way because of how different people are. For example, if you asked a person, hey, what's the most important thing in your life? They may say something like uh, playing the violin, going for my weekly night drive, or wearing my grandfather's watch from World War II. See, the first question asks, what is of universal importance? The second question asks, what is of personal importance? 
Now, with all that said, here's the key question for today. Which question would be the most fitting, the most appropriate when God is the answer to it? Is God the most important thing in life regardless of who you are? Or is God the most important thing for those who have a personal interest in the spiritual, the supernatural, the religious, the ritual? Well, if you ask Jesus that very question, he would always say, it's always the first. God is the most important thing in life, period. And how do I know Jesus would say this? Because of what he says in verse 6 of our passage. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. According to Jesus Christ, God is the most important thing ever because of who God is. And what is God? He is Father. In other words, the reason why Jesus would say God the Father is the most important thing, excuse me, the reason why God is the most important thing of all is because He is the Father. The Father. Now, some of you might be wondering, why is that the case? Because many of you may not agree with it, maybe for some mothers in here. What's so special, what's so significant of God being Father that makes Him the most important thing of all? Well, maybe this quote from theologian Michael Reeves could help. Listen to what he says, quote, To be the father means to love, to give out life, to beget the son. Before anything else, for all eternity, this God was loving, giving life, and delighting in the son. Just like a fountain, to be a fountain, must pour forth water, so the father, to be father, must give out life. That is who he is. That is his most fundamental identity. Thus, love is not something the father has, merely one of his many moods. Rather, he is love. He could not not love. If he did not love, he would not be the father, end quote. The reason why God the father is the most important thing of all is because love is the most important thing of all. Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, you might be thinking, well, why didn't you just say so, pastor? In fact, why doesn't Jesus just say it that simply? Why even bother referencing the Father at all? Because who could disagree that love is the most important thing? But here's what you need to understand. According to Jesus, in order to have one, you need the other. If you want love, you need the Father. You see, if you want to experience fully the enjoyment, the endowment, the wonderful bliss of being loved, you must be connected who is the only source of love. Because if you don't have the Father, whatever small sampling of love you are enjoying right now, that's all you're going to get, and it's not going to last. And because Jesus wouldn't want anyone to suffer that kind of terrible deprivation, he says you need to have the Father. And in our passage today, he's going to show us three ways in which we can ensure that we have the source of love in our lives. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, we're going to talk about how we have the Father through the way of Jesus. We have the Father through the way of Jesus. Number two, we have the Father through the truth of Jesus. And finally, we end it with we have the Father through the life of Jesus. We have the Father through the way of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, and the life of Jesus. Let's begin with the first point. We have the Father through the way of Jesus. Let's look at our passage again, starting in verse 1. We read, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Okay, pause it right there. Your attention, 
please. Jesus begins our passage by telling his disciples to not be, quote-unquote, troubled. Troubled. Now, I'm not very happy with that particular word because it almost makes it sound as if Jesus is simply telling his disciples, look, try not to be mildly annoyed or superficially irritated. It's going to be okay like you're talking to a toddler who is hangry, right? Because that's not what Jesus is trying to convey. Because if you read these words in the original Greek in which it was written, that word troubled in our passage is more accurately translated as terrified, freaking out with dreaded fear. Almost as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, chill out, don't go crazy, do not go suicidal here with dread, just relax. Jesus is speaking as a crisis specialist would be speaking to a person who's in a frantic and terrified state of mind, which begs the question, what in the world is happening that's causing the disciples to freak out like this? Well, in order to answer that question, you actually have to go to the previous chapter than the one that we're in right now because our passage is actually a continuation of a discussion that he started there. In fact, if you zero in on the very last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 13, verse 38, we come to discover what the real cause of the disciples' fear is. Listen to, as I read to you, Jesus answered, die for me. I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Now, for those of you who grew up attending Sunday school, listening to Bible stories, you'll immediately recognize what Jesus is speaking of. He is prophetically talking about how the leader of the pack, Peter, is going to, in the immediate future, future, not once, not twice, but three times, deny that he even knows Jesus, let alone follows him. And here's the thing. Even though these ominous words are being directed at Peter, the rest of the disciples who clearly hear Jesus are terrified by what they just heard. Why? We'll consider this explanation from theologian Warren Wearsby as he says, Just as Peter was beginning to feel like a hero, Jesus announced that he himself would become a casualty. The message not only shocked Peter, but also stunned the rest of the disciples. After all, if brave Peter denied the Lord, what hope was there for the rest of them? It was then that Jesus gave his message to calm their troubled hearts, end quote. See, the disciples were freaking out. They were terrified because their great leader, i.e. Peter, was going to turn into the greatest failure in terms of staying loyal and loving to their master, Jesus Christ. And it freaked them out. Back in uh, 2014, I remember one morning I was taking a quick break from work. I was scrolling through Facebook. And as I did, excuse me, I was shocked and disappointed to discover that a pastor who I deeply admired, a pastor who impacted me throughout my college years as a brand new Christian, was kicked out of his church because of scandal. Multiple affairs, prostitution, um, just addiction to pornography, right? Now, back then, I still knew that stuff like this happened all the time, but if you told me that this particular pastor would have ended up like this, I would have betted my entire ministry, no, that could never happen, because the way this man taught the Bible, the insights that he communicated just conveyed to me that this guy has such a unique, deep relationship with God that almost makes him impervious to the common temptations and falls of other pastors, but when it was clear to me that I was dead wrong, my disappointment quickly morphed into dread. Because if someone like him, of his spiritual stature, could fall so grilly that I knew I was just as capable of suffering that same fate. Yeah, 
I could lose my ministry just like that pastor did. My wife could divorce me just like his wife divorced him. My children could despise me just like, sadly, his children now and still despises him. My character, my credibility could be forever lost just like his is now lost. And here's the thing. You don't have to be a fellow pastor. You don't have to be a Christian to be able to relate to this story because have we not all faced that universal fear of possibly passing the point of no return? Haven't we ever been confronted of the uncertainty of maybe us going too far with our sins to where we have jeopardized and risked the things that are so important to us? In fact, I'm willing to bet that some of you know people personally who have lost their way and now they can never go back to what they had before even though they desperately wish they could and so here's the question what happens to a person when they're convinced that they've gone too far that they burned the bridges that they passed the point of no return a few years back uh, an old high school buddy of mine just reached out to me out of the blue asking if i could officiate his wedding i was like hey man of course no doubt i'll be there and i still remember the night before the wedding, we were having <clears throat> dinner, and I almost said drinks, but I, I don't drink, guys, so he was drinking, I was, but we were having dinner, right, and we were um, just catching up, and he was updating me on some mutual friends of ours that I lost touch with over the years, and then he shared with me a mutual friend that we had that we were both very close to, and I come to discover that our dear friend suffered the same fate as that pastor that I just referenced before. Here was a friend of mine who was happily married to a beautiful woman, had a gorgeous daughter that was the center of his life, that changed him 180, had a wonderful home raising this family in, had a great paying job, but then it was discovered. A year-long affair with a coworker resulted in an unwanted pregnancy, and then he lost it all, right? He lost his wife, divorced him, lost his child, no custody, lost his house, definitely lost the job, and as my friend is informing me about our mutual friend's predicament, I said, did you follow up with him? Have you reached out to him? Have you seen how he's doing? And my friend goes, yeah, I try. But every time I go to that trailer park that he's now living in, you know, trying to ostracize himself, he doesn't open the door. The only thing he says on the other side is, you can't be here. I don't deserve your visit. Please, just go away. It's so easy to think that if you've messed up your life or more significantly messed up the lives of those that you love, that you never deserve to ever be happy or hopeful again, even when the opportunity arises. And friends, if there are any of you in this room who think this way, if there's any of you at home watching thinking the same thing, you need to hear what Jesus is saying in our passage. Because what Jesus is essentially saying is simply this. There is a legitimate way for you to once again experience the greatest thing of all. You can once again have love, but you can only have it through me because I am the only way back to love. Right? Jesus is saying that by calling himself the way. He is the only way back for those who have forfeited, who have forsaken love, and yet once again able to receive love because they are connected back to the source of love, the Father himself. This is what Jesus dying on the cross is all about. God, the eternal son, came into the world as a human being, Jesus Christ, so that people like my friend could once again be loved on. Right? How? 
Because when Jesus came into the world, he paid for the full penalty, the full punishment for sin by dying his substitutionary death on the cross. Anyone who looks to Jesus as their atoning sacrifice for their sins can once again get access to love even when the previous ways of accessing that love, a wife, a child, friends, have been cut off. Those bridges have been burned. Jesus has bypassed those burned bridges and has given us direct access to love itself by giving us access to the Father. That is what Jesus is trying to convey for anyone who feels that they have forsaken and forfeited the thing that really matters. Jesus says there is hope. There is hope through me because I am the way back. Even when you have lost your way because of your sins. Now, Maybe there are some of you who can say, thankfully, that you've never gone that far. You've never burned bridges like this. You've never passed the point of no return. And therefore, you're tempted to think that maybe the Father isn't as important to you as it would be to my friend or to that former pastor or other people that you can think of right now who have messed up their lives. But Jesus would say, not so fast. Because there are other things about the Father that make him just as important to you as he would be for people who have lost their way. And to explain what I mean, let me go to my next point. We have the Father through the truth of Jesus. Let's read verses 2 and 3 one more time of our passage. It says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Okay, if you have a pen, if you have a highlighter, I want you to circle or underline that statement embedded in the middle of verse 2 that goes like this. If it were not so. If it were not so, in some other translations it says, if it were not true. And by using this statement, Jesus is indirectly speaking of the hypothetical possibility of something that was thought to be true turning out not to be true. And what is this hypothetical possibility? That there are indeed not that many rooms in the Father's house as Jesus claims. Now you might be wondering, what the heck does that even mean? And furthermore, why should we even care? Well, consider... This explanation from theologian A.W. Pink as he comments on these verses. He says, quote, Today the average home is little more than a boarding house, a place to eat and sleep in. But home used to mean the place where we are loved for our own sakes, the place where we are always welcome, the place where we can retire from the strife of the world and enjoy rest and peace, the place where loved ones are together. Such will heaven be. Believers are now in a strange country, ye, in the enemy's land. In the life to come, they will be at home, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying that this reference to the Father's house is a symbol of the Father's love. And more specifically, the rooms in the Father's home is symbolic of the specific, unique love the Father has for the person that room belongs to. Or if I could put it another way, the room is a symbol that a person has a unique place in the Father's heart where the Father uniquely knows them, he is with them, he is for them, and he truly loves them. So, you put all this together, when Jesus speaks of the hypothetical possibility that there aren't that many rooms in the Father's home, he's speaking of the hypothetical possibility that maybe there isn't any room for you in the Father's heart. That means he doesn't really know you, he doesn't really care about you, he's not really for you, he does not really love you at all. Now, here's the question. What would that do to somebody if they believe such a hypothetical possibility. Back when I was uh, a little kid, around seven or eight, I remember sitting in my parents' car with my older brother, who was like 12 or 13 at the time. We were waiting for our parents to come 
back into the car and take us out to a family dinner. And as we were waiting, my brother <clears throat> looks at me with the sincerest and sternest look, and he goes, John, I've got to tell you something. I'm not your brother, right? You're not, we're not blood. And at first, like, yeah, yeah, oh, whatever, nice try. I'm not going to fall for it again. But then he's like, no, 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 I'm being serious. Listen, when mommy and daddy were younger, they were so poor. Like, we were so poor that, that we almost became homeless. But then someone knocked on our door, and it was this lady with a baby. And she said, I can't take care of this baby, but if you take care of it, I'll give you this lump sump of money. And they did. Guess what, John? You're that baby. <laughs> My brother said that with the most serious look on his face. Right? And then he said something that was really like dagger in the heart. He said, trust me. I'm telling you the truth. This is the truth, John. It was at that moment I felt so lost, so unwanted, so betrayed, you know. Um, of course, five minutes later, I knew my brother was lying through his teeth, and he almost lost his teeth by my mom, right? But before I knew, I was really in a weird state of mind because my parents, who prior to this moment, I deeply loved, I trusted, and I believed in, started turning into people I didn't trust and I didn't believe in, and I started to hate, right? All because I thought something that I always thought was true turning out not to be true. Now, this personal story serves as a perfect common analogy to so many atheists and agnostics today who used to be believers. At one point in their life, they did believe in God, which therefore meant they trusted in him, and they also believed that he loved them. But then something happened, something terrible, something traumatic, something troublesome. And now, what they always thought was true, they stopped believing. The Father doesn't love me. And as a result, belief turned into doubt, trust turned into skepticism, love turned into rejection. To put it in the words of Jesus, they stopped believing there was room for them in the Father's house. Because as far as there was concerned, there's no such thing as a room because there's no such thing as a house because there's no such thing as the Father. Now think about that for a moment. Let's say the truth is there is no Father, capital F, God the Father. Right? Do you realize what that means? That means there's no love. Because remember, if the Father is the source of love and if, the f and if there is, you know, <clears throat> no father, that means love itself isn't real. It's simply an imaginary concept. Like the concept of love would be like the concept of a unicorn, right? It only exists in the imagination of people's wishful thinking, in only their emotional imagination, you see. So for a husband to be faithful to his wife out of love for her would be just as silly as a little boy being kind to his sister so he can stay on Santa's nice list it will be based on a foundation that is unreal because remember what truth is truth by definition is that which actually describes reality and if that is our reality that means love it's a fantasy it's a myth for a parent to sacrifice their dreams out of love for their children, for a soldier to serve in the military out of love for his country would be considered the most irrational, most illogical thing to do because it would not be based on any foundation of reality, no truth. But yet listen to what Jesus says again. In my Father's house 
are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying, this is the truth. There are many rooms in the Father's house. There is a unique place for you in the Father's heart. Jesus is saying love is not some mythical belief. It is not some imaginary concept. It is something based on objective reality. It is true because he's irrefutable proof of it. This is what he means when he says, I am the truth. He's saying, I am the rational justification for the belief in the existence of love because I am the irrefutable proof of the existence of the source of love, the Father himself. Now, you might be wondering, how exactly is Jesus irrefutable proof of the existence of the Father? Well, let me see if I can explain by going to my final point. We have the Father through the life of Jesus. Let's now read the remainder of our passage, starting in verse 8. We read, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Okay, so after hearing everything that Jesus is speaking of, Philip, one of the disciples, says, Jesus, can you actually prove what you're saying? Can you actually show us evidence of the Father? Can you give us proof of his existence? And then Jesus says something so weird with all this circular talk of I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. If you look at me, you've seen him. Like, what in the world are we to make of this? Well, let me see if I can explain. Listen again to what Jesus says in verse 11. Believe me that I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on the count. Oh, excuse me, not that one. Ignore what I just said. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, don't take Jesus literally here. He's not saying that if you look at me, you're actually looking at the Father as if he and the Father are the same person. But what he is saying is that if you want proof for the existence of the Father, just look at me, right? Why? Because in order for love to exist, there must be the existence of someone to love. Let me say that again. In order for love to exist, there must be someone to love. Listen to how, again, Michael Reeves puts it. He says this, now, God could not be love if there were nobody to love. He could not be a father without a child. And yet, it is not as if God created so that he could love someone. He is love and does not need to create in order to be who he is. If he did, what a needy, lonely thing he would be. Poor old God, we would say. If he created us in order to be who he is, then we would be the ones giving him life. No, says Jesus, the Son, who according to Colossians 1, is before all things, the one through whom all things were created. It is he who was loved by the Father before the creation of the world. The Father, then, is the Father of the eternal Son. And he finds his very identity, his fatherhood, in loving and giving out his life and being to the Son. This is why it's so important to note that the Son is the eternal Son. There was never a time when he, the Son, didn't exist. If there were, then God is a completely different sort of being. If there were once a time when the son didn't exist, there was once a time when the father was not yet a father. And if that is the case, then once upon a time, God was not loving since all by himself, he would have nobody to love, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying, if you want proof of the existence of the father, just look to the person whose very existence is to be 
loved by the Father. That's what he's saying. See, this is what it means for Jesus to be the life. It's not referring to his earthly life. It's talking about his life, his existence from eternity past to eternity future to eternity now. The very point of why Jesus exists, the Son, is for one purpose, to simply be loved by the Father. That's how his life is defined. His life, his existence is simply to be the object of love by the Father. And guess what? That is the life that Jesus gives you through his death on the cross. Yes, you heard you get eternal life, but what is eternal life? Eternal life is simply you experiencing existence the way Jesus has and will always experience his existence of simply being loved by the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. This is why the New Testament teaches, by the way, that the goal of the Christian life is to what? Be like Jesus. That's not referring to you turning into a clone of Jesus, you know, growing a beard and turning Middle Eastern. He's saying that you experience your life, your existence, the way Jesus has and always will, of simply being loved on. The goal of the Christian life is not to do works for God, not to even love God, but to first primarily be loved by the Father, to be loved by God. That is your main purpose, you see? Now, as you consider all this, Listen to what Jesus says in verse 11. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus, as he's speaking about all this, makes a reference to his works. And according to New Testament scholars, this is referring to all the works that he did, right? Including the most important work of all, where he was unjustly condemned, unfairly treated, where he suffered unjust sufferings. And here's what's so odd. He references these works as evidence for the Father's love for him. Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus look to all the terrible things that were done to him, the unfair treatment, the unjust suffering, and use it as proof of the Father's love for him rather than evidence of the Father's hatred of him, which is what probably most of us would do? Well, I think there's two reasons. Reason number one, Jesus is trying to show us from his own personal experience that just because the Father loves you doesn't mean you won't have to suffer tragedies or unjust sufferings. Does the Father love Jesus? Of course he does, more than anything. But did that love for the Son immunize him for having to suffer unfairly to be treated in an unjust way? No. Right? If it happened to Jesus, it is going to happen to us. The second thing Jesus is trying to teach us is because the Father loves us so much, he's going to ensure that all the unfair treatment, all the unjust sufferings that we go through will always result in a greater good. Did something good come out of the worst unjust treatment, the worst victimization of all, i.e. in Jesus' suffering? Of course. The salvation of the whole world, the renewal of creation, the glory of God, people who are lost finding their way back to the Lord, if the Father's love is powerful enough to restore, to reverse, and even release blessings from the worst tragedy, the worst unfair treatment, the worst unjust suffering of all, that means his love for you is just as capable of doing the same thing when you go through trauma, when you go through terrible uh, moments, when you go through unjust sufferings. You see? Do you see? If you do, the next time you go through something traumatic, troublesome, and unfair, and unjust, 
You won't see that as evidence of the Father's hatred of you. You're going to see it as opportunity for the Father to repeat what he did in Jesus' victimization to what he'll do in yours. He's going to make something wonderful, wonderful come out of it to where it not only blesses you, it will have a profound, positive impact to those around you. If you get that, then you'll be able to go through whatever hardships this life has to throw at us, and you'll still come out of it able to have the conviction to say, I'm still going to be faithful to my spouse, even though I suffered. I'm still going to sacrifice for my children for their good, even if I've been deprived. I am going to serve the community for their good, even though I have not been given any benefit of my own. See, This is what it means for us to recognize that the Father is the most important thing of all. We recognize that love is real, and it is powerful enough to overcome whatever hardships, whatever evil, whatever suffering, whatever darkness we go through, and come out of it not like the devil, but come out of it like the most beloved person of God. We come out of it like Jesus. This is why Jesus says what he does. The Father is the most important thing of all because it is through the Father's love that you overcome everything that tries to monstercize and villainize you. Do you see that? My hope and prayer that as we go into this Easter week, that you'll keep that in mind as you consider the sufferings and the turmoil and the trouble and the heartache of our Savior, that you understand what he was trying to achieve for you, what he has achieved for you right now. Let us pray. Father, as we think about <clears throat> who you are and the importance that you embody, God, forgive us when we minimize and when we fail to see that you are the most important thing ever. Lord, it is so easy to get so distracted and to be so uh, turned away because of the hardships and turmoil that we go through, the sufferings that we've endured. And Father, we pray that you will guard us against that kind of folly, that we would not believe the lie, that we would never say something is true when in fact it is not true at all. God, help us to truly be your people who are confident in your love for us so that when we live out this life of love, we would not be <clears throat> considered stupid, but we would be recognized as the most brilliant, the most logical, the most rational people because we're living by the truth. God, help us to live out these truths today and every day of our lives. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. We're not going to give God his time.